Uh, today we're beginning a series um, that will be today and then the following four weeks. And uh, I'm just calling the series Origins, and we're looking at uh, just the first three chapters of Genesis. So trying to walk through, uh, we'll read every verse in those, in those first three chapters, I believe. And uh, we'll walk through that together. And today we're looking at uh, just the first part. Uh, human beings haven't even uh, been created yet in the creation story. So we'll come to that next week. We'll talk about being created in God's image and what that might mean for human beings. Um, but today we're really looking at just the, the created order of things um, and how God establishes uh, the creation. Um, there's, there can be uh, controversy, actually, about Genesis 1, as most of us are probably well aware. Um, and, uh, you know, for a long time now, well over 100 years, uh, Christians primarily, because non-Christians don't seem to care too much about what to, is being said in Genesis 1, but Christians have uh, pitted things against one another, like creation versus Big Bang theory or evolution and all of that, and tried to tried to create a fight. Like, well, I don't know why Christians really like a fight, but uh, I guess we really want to fight about this stuff. Um, and uh, I, so I don't want to fight today about, about this kind of stuff, but I think it's worth kind of looking at and trying to ask some questions. Um, whether, whether this text about creation, is this a description of what really happened, is kind of one of those questions that uh, causes some fights amongst Christians. Um, if... If not, then what implication does that have for our interpretation of, of Scripture? And if it isn't trying to describe exactly what happened or how God created things, then what is the point of the creation story? Um, we can ask these kinds of questions, um, but I came across an article this week uh, by John Walton. John Walton is um, professor of Old Testament, or at least was at the time of, of this writing, uh, professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College, which is an evangelical college. Um, and he wrote an article uh, called the Genesis, uh, sorry, called Genesis 1 as Ancient Cosmology. And uh, he has a book by the same name, so I'll you know, promote that. Um, and one of the things I'm thinking about is just to provide a, a link to this article on the church website. Um, so if anybody wants to go and read the whole article, which is quite technical, uh, you, can, you can go and read that. Um, and by the way, our sermons are recorded and put on our website, so it'll be there with the recorded link. And I want to thank Helen. Where's Helen? Thank Helen. Helen's been the one who's kind of responsible, although with technological assistance from Wesley of how to make it uh, all work at the, on Sunday. But then Helen takes the audio file and makes it all work properly and gets it on the website for us. So I want to thank Helen for that. And, um, but you can go and uh, recommend to people as well if they want to listen to it. Um, but along with that, we'll put the link for this article uh, with the audio file so you can go and look at it. Um, because I think it's a really helpful article, and I'm not trying to say it is the definitive way of thinking about Genesis 1, but it really got me thinking, and so I wanted to share it with you. And um, so his, what he argues is that um, the ancient Hebrews actually had just a different way of thinking about creation than we do. And... Um, and we find this in Genesis 1, is that they tended not to think about material creation, as in the creation of things, but they thought about creation being the ordering, the naming, or the giving of function 
to things that didn't have function, okay? So if something really was useless, then it wasn't really created yet. That the act of creation was to give something and name something and give it a purpose. And if we look at this text from this perspective, it's actually quite fascinating. So if you look at verse two, for instance, it starts off with the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Notice what it doesn't say. It does not say there was nothing, right? It says the earth was a formless void. There's, it seems like there's nothing, but yet there's a face of the deep and there's waters, yet it doesn't tell us that God created those things. Now, we believe that God did create everything that is, and, but it's just Genesis doesn't tell us that. It tells us that it was a formless void, and what God does is God starts to bring order to that formlessness, okay? Um, by the way, if you're looking in verse two and you're thinking a wind from God, that, that's the Hebrew word ruach, which means spirit. It's exactly the same word, so it gets translated either wind or spirit throughout the Old Testament. Um, and this idea of sweeping over is sometimes tra translated as hovered or hovered and moved. So God is, is moving over the waters, um, kind of hovering over top of them. God's spirit is doing that. So that's verse two, and then as we move into verse four, we find that it says God separated the light from the darkness. So we've kind of got darkness, and then God brings light out of it and separates it out, and then God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And so what God does here is God provides function where, not, where none existed before. What is God creating in verse four and five? Well, God in incredibly is creating time in verse four and verse five. But notice that God does not create anything materially in verse four and verse five, right? He creates light and dark and creates, calls one day and calls one night. He's creating days and nights, but he doesn't create anything materially. In fact, he doesn't, tells us that he doesn't create the sun until later. And we have a scientific problem with this part of the text, right? Because we know our day and our night are dependent on the sun, or perhaps more specifically, dependent on the rotation of the earth and, and all of that stuff, right? Like that science tells us that. But in ancient Hebrew thought, the physical creation of the sun and the moon and the stars is not really anywhere nearly as important as the ordering of the periods of light and day, or light and dark, and naming them day and night. So when they're named by God day and night, that's incredibly significant in ancient Hebrew thought. And it's fundamental to the ordering of light. And from their perspective, whether God used the sun or whether God used something else to govern that fundamental functioning of day and night, that's actually less important to the ancient Hebrews. So we need to know a little bit about how they thought about these things in order to understand why Genesis 1 is the way it is. So in verse 6 to 8, God makes a dome to separate waters. Okay, Waters above from waters below. And this is actually quite hard for us to get our head around this. The King James Version doesn't use the word dome, it uses the words, word firmament, if we remember that, if we know our King James. And so the ancient belief was that there, there are waters uh, down here on earth, right? We can see water, uh, so the ocean, sea, lakes, and rivers, there's water. And we look up and there's a blue sky so there must be waters up there too. That's the thinking. And so God, 
created this dome that we can see, right? It looks, doesn't look like it's flat. It looks like a dome when we look up at it. And used that dome, and uh, firmament is a good word because they believed that it was actually a hard shell-like substance that was there, and used that to stop the waters from above uh, just deluging into the waters below. And so that's what they believed God did. Now, we know scientifically that the sky, because God called that dome or firmament sky, we know the sky is not a rigid dome. We've flown through it. <laughs> it's not there to keep water out. But in fact, that doesn't matter because the ancient Hebrews, they actually wouldn't have cared at all about the physical properties of the creation of the sky. Right? They're just describing what they, what they know. But they don't actually care about how it works. What they do care is about the function or the role that the sky played. Okay? So when God created sky, what is God creating? Well, he's in fact creating weather. Right? God creates a way for the waters to be held back so it's just not a constant monsoon. Um, but it also, in that creation, all kinds of things are created, like the, the opportunity for, for clouds and the opportunity for rain to come down and all of that kind of thing are created in that moment of creating sky. And that's really, really important for the ancient Hebrews. And we'll see why that's important in verses 9 to 13, where God makes the next most important function or role for the ancient Hebrews. In those verses, God creates agriculture or fertile ground. See, from the ancient Hebrews' perspective, God is establishing the functions needed for their lives to be possible, and he names them. Okay, so light separated from darkness, named day and night. Something uh, that's given the name sky to separate the waters from above from what is below. Uh, something that's given the name earth, which is land that's separated out from the water where all kinds of plants can grow. And notice in the description of the land and what grows there, how much of the emphasis is on agriculture because that's their society, right? The whole emphasis is on seeds, the basic for agriculture. Verse 11 through 12 say this, Then God said, Let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees of every kind on the earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good. That's the first three days. They're about God putting in place the functions needed for human life to be possible, as the ancient Hebrews knew it. The next three days are not about the functions, but actually more about putting functionaries in place to govern and live within the functions described in the first three days. So what happens in verse 14 to 19? Well, sun, moon, and stars are created to govern the functions of day and night. And God gives them a purpose in verse 14. Their primary purpose is for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And that word seasons is exactly the same word that is used elsewhere in the Bible for festivals, which if we 
we won't, won't put festivals into Genesis 1 because there aren't any yet, right? So we'll put seasons in there instead. But, but think about it from their perspective. What is it that governs when we have our festivals to honor God? Well, it's the sun and the moon and the stars and their movements. And even Easter is based on what's going on in the skies, celestial movements. We still set our date for Easter based on that. See, they see their purpose of these things as supporting human life. And so we populate uh, the sky. Then the next day, uh, verses 20 to 23, on day five, there's animals that are put in the water and there's animals that fly across the sky. And then in verse 24 and following, there's animals that are placed on the land. That's day six. And ultimately, human beings are also created on day six. So it's interesting to think about it this way, that we're given uh, a way to think about, or a framework to think about Genesis 1. Day 1 through 3, create, God creates the functions and provides structure. And then day 4 to 6, once the structure exists that will be able to sustain life, God populates the structures in a very orderly way, in a way that kind of is seen what was needed by the ancient Hebrews. So there's water. Well, let's put fish and sea creatures in it. There's sky, let's have birds that fly across it. There's earth, let's put animals of the land on it. And just in that logical order. Now, I'm telling you all this not because I think we need to think like ancient Hebrews and we need to throw out science and think this way. Um, but I think it can be really helpful to know how they thought. Because they thought in a fundamentally different way about creation. See, we think about matter, right? We think about things and how they were physically created. So we'll do things like we'll wonder, well, how did the universe come to be? And the ancient Hebrews just aren't asking that question. We will ask, well, how were there not human beings and then there were human beings? Well, how did that happen? What process happened for that to take place? And it's science that tries to answer these how questions. Genesis doesn't attempt to answer the how questions of a material creation doesn't try to answer that question at all. Genesis tells about a God who is directed toward what he creates in a loving way. It tells about a God who orders the creation in such a way that he looks at it and he calls it good. That's what Genesis 1 is about. And so I don't think we're supposed to reject what science teaches us about the origins of our earth and of animals and of people. But nor are we supposed to write off Genesis 1 as outdated or unimportant though it doesn't matter anymore. I think if we can see Genesis 1 in a way that the first readers saw it, I think then it may in fact become even more beautiful and even more powerful for us. Um, what I'd like us to do, I've got a, a video, and this is a, it's a time-lapse video of Norway. There's no sound, so I didn't tell you, but don't worry about the sound. Um, and I'd just like us to play that. That's fine. You can let it go. And... Um, because it has the credits there. And I, this can just be on the screen. I'm going to continue preaching, but this I just thought was a beautiful video that shows us God's creation. And keep in mind, this is one country in our world. It's one little tiny piece of the earth. And it's absolutely gorgeous, I think. Um, so I'm just going to keep talking, but you can, you can watch that video as it goes. We read uh, and normally do read from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. And in verse 1 of our Genesis reading, it adds the word when 
uh, to verse 1. So it says, in the beginning, when God created, that when actually is not in the, in the text in Hebrew. Uh, most other English translations translate it a little better than the NRSV in this case. And it should start like this, in the beginning, God created, et cetera, et cetera. And there are many that have said, actually, we, in the Bible, we really only need the first four words to tell us what we need to know. And those first four words are, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. That's all we need to know. God establishes the functioning of our world. God populates it, and God calls it good. God speaks, and the world as we know it is set in motion. God simply speaks, and then God, at the end of each day, looks and sees. Listen to this. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. God called the, the, the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. The earth brought forth vegetation. And God saw that it was good. God made the two great lights. And God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. To separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind with which the water swarms and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and the cattle of every kind and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. The mindset we need when approaching Genesis 1 is not one of arguing about how God did it or what he did. It's one of awe and wonder. We need to adopt the same mindset that God had at the end of each day of creation. Look around and see that the creation is good. It, it can really, really be quite easy to see that the creation has fallen or that the creation has been damaged. But what Genesis 1 does is I think it calls us back to see its true nature as created by God. It is good. The first believers in Jesus knew this. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. See, what's awesome about creation as well is that creation reflects the creator. God loves diversity. God loves beauty. The best example of the beauty and goodness and diversity of creation that I could think of when I was trying to think of something is flowers. I wish my wife was here because I she does all the gardening, and uh, but she's at my nephew's baptism today, so um, and she t handles all the flowers. Like I'll build a thing for the flowers to go in, um, and then she can take it from there. Um, if I was taking care of the flowers, they would die. 
that's just what would happen. But they're, they're really beautiful. Flowers are really, really beautiful. Uh, how far are we I'm getting there? Okay. Um, did you know there's 270,000 types of flowers? In fact, there's actually more than 270,000 types of flowers. And we know that there's more. There, the scientists estimate that there's uh, about 10 to 15% of the flowers on Earth of the, the different kinds are actually unclassified and are in remote regions of the world. So you've kind of got to add somewhere between 10 and 15% to that 270,000. So we only have 200, we, we've classified 270,000 or, or a little more than that. I mean, that's incredible. Um, I want to tell you about one particular flower, and we do have a, a picture of this flower, so we can put that up. Um, it's quite nice. These are yellow and purple lady slippers, one of the most rare flowers in the world. Okay, so this is, it's a wild orchid, and it was once found all across Europe, um, but it's not anymore. Um, they're now growing only in Britain. Uh, Charles Darwin, because we need to mention Charles Darwin if we're talking about Genesis 1 uh, for fun, but we're going to mention him in a totally different context. He actually tried to cultivate this flower and failed. Even Darwin was unable to figure out how to get this to grow. Okay, so uh, you can try but it's probably not going to happen. Um, the, the reason why they think this is so rare is that the seeds of the, of the flower actually provide no nourishment for the growing plant. Um, so what it, does, it lives in a symbiotic relationship with a very specific kind of fungus that gives it its nourishment. Really cool. The only place that this grows right now is at a certain, I didn't find out which one, but it's at a certain golf course in Britain of all places. And so ever since the year 1917, these flowers and that golf course have actually been under police protection, probably now moved to conservation type protection, but originally it was the police that would stop people from picking them or damaging them in any way. So it's now set up to preserve it from any person and any golf ball <laughs> as well, right? and take precautions. Cuttings of this flower have been sold, and I don't know if they've, apparently they haven't been able to do much with them, um, but the cuttings, a single cutting, can be sold for $5,000 US, because the flower is so rare. So that's just one, very rare one, out of over 270,000 different kinds of flowers. Now, I'm sure, I don't know really anything about flowers. I'm sure they serve some kind of purpose for all the things that I said about God creating purpose and order. But really, God, are over 270,000 different kinds of flowers really necessary? Other than to display a wealth and breadth of beauty. God looked upon creation and called it good. And this is important. It wasn't that he was designating it as good. Okay? It was his own reflection. He saw that it was good. He spoke it into existence and then looked back. Wow, that is good. It's not that he's designating it as good. He's seeing it as good. We ought to look upon creation, God's creation, with wonder at what the creator has done. 
Um, to close, I want to read to you Psalm 104, uh, the first 28 verses, which talk about God's creation. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, wrapped in light as with a garment. You stretch out the heavens like a tent. You set the beams of your chambers on the waters. You make the clouds your chariot. You ride on the wings of the wind. You make the winds your messengers, fire and flame your ministers. You set the earth on its foundations so that it shall never be shaken. You cover it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they flee. At the sound of your thunder, they take to flight. They rose up to the mountains, ran down to the valleys, to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills, giving drink to every wild animal. To the wild donkeys, you quench their thirst. By the streams, the birds of the air have their habitation. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the cattle and plants for people to use to bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the human heart, oil to make the face shine, and bread to strengthen the human heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the trees of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has its home in the fir trees, the high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are a refuge for the conies. You have made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun knows its time for setting. You make darkness and it is night, when all the animals of the forest come creeping out. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they withdraw and lie down in their dens. People go out to their work and to their labor until evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Yonder is the sea, great and wide. Creeping things innumerable are there, living things both great and small. There go the ships and, Levi and Leviathan that you formed to sport in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God spoke. All was created. All was set in motion. In the beginning, God saw that what was created was good.